Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniaks. We're living in interesting times right now, friends. Dark times, where we could use a little more light, a little more entertainment. And, well, I've got hella stories in my trunk. So, for the foreseeable future, in addition to our regular episodes on the third Friday of the month, I'll be putting out a reading of something from my own trunk on the first Friday of the month. When I announced that I'd be on the other side of the microphone for our regular April episode, I put up a poll presenting a few of the options I thought would be best to bring on the show, and while you'll be hearing the top pick from that poll in a couple weeks, this was the second most popular choice. On today's episode, I'll be reading my story, Steelyard. This is a story that I wrote in 2009, initially for a class assignment in undergrad. Unlike some of the things that I wrote for my classes, though, I liked this one enough to put it in my regular submission rotation, where it got some traction, but never a sale. It's been sitting in my trunk for probably six or seven years at this point. The streets of Pripyat were completely quiet, quieter than the streets of a small town in the dead of night. The sun shone down onto the cracked asphalt, nourishing the trees that sprouted here and there and created great rifts in the middle of the road. The stillness among those broken, gray Soviet apartment blocks was unnatural. Although I knew that nobody could live here anymore, I imagined that I was being watched through the broken windows of any number of identical concrete buildings. In the distance, the bright yellow gondolas of the Ferris wheel in the city's center looked incongruous against the trees that had grown undisturbed for almost twenty years. I turned, taking my thoughts from the sort of carefree summer's day for which the Ferris wheel begged. Beyond the endless rows of concrete buildings, the faded red and white cooling tower of Reactor 4 loomed, casting its shadow out in all directions for thirty kilometers. Beyond that ominous reminder of my situation, I could see the enormous steel structure of the Duga 3 installation, the nest of the Russian woodpecker. I got back into my boxy white rental car, encouraged the engine to sputter back to life, turned it around, and drove down the center of the street. I paid no mind to the street signs. I couldn't read them. I had seen progressively fewer cars since I had departed Kiev that morning, Mine was the only car on the road by the time I had reached the gate to the fourth zone. If my car had been more robust, I might have tried to drive in a straight line towards Duga 3, only changing direction when I encountered a significant obstacle. But my pathetic little Yugo seemed to struggle to get out of first gear on a flat road, and I thought the engine might fall out if I tried to take the car over the curb. The Russian woodpecker was the first thing that I remembered about my father. He had been obsessed with the tapping signal that had started playing merry hell with shortwave radio signals a few years before I was born. He would sit in our dimly lit basement for hours, one hand on the tuning knob of his ham radio, the other hovering by a reel-to-reel tape recorder, scanning the airwaves for that well-known interference. Once he found it, he would turn on the recorder, capturing maybe a minute of interference. After recording for a short while, he would turn off both the recorder and the radio, rewind the tape, and then listen to the recorded signal for hours, taking illegible notes on a legal pad. He rarely read to me, leaving bedtime stories to my mother. If he did read to me, it was always something from one of the newspapers that he would tack to the walls of the basement, 
stories about Roswell or the Bermuda Triangle or communist involvement in the new Macintosh computer. Before I was old enough to understand what he was doing, he would sit me down on his lap and stick an enormous pair of headphones on my head. We would run through radio frequencies, moving up or down the dial as soon as he was sure he wouldn't hear the woodpecker. Simon, he would say when we found the quick pulse of that mysterious signal, they keep saying that this is just those damn commies keeping an ear out in case we shoot nukes at them, but don't you believe them? When I grew older and had some inkling of what all his words meant, I asked him what the signal was. It's a plot. A code people can understand subliminally. I don't know what it means yet, but I'm going to find out. It was only later that I learned the meaning of all the words that my father used when he sat with me in that dim room. At the time, I mostly just nodded. He had such a serious tone when he talked about the woodpecker. Even before I understood everything that he said, I knew that it was important. I would walk around muttering the remembered syllables of those words that I didn't understand, trying to figure them out by the simple act of repetition. One day, my father had a breakthrough. He had been in the basement all afternoon, yelling something about being onto something when my mother had called him for dinner. I was pushing my peas around the edge of my plate, trying to spread them out so that it would look like I had eaten enough to warrant a slice of cake, when a shout from the basement startled me and my mother. A few seconds later, I heard my father run up the basement stairs. He stopped for a moment after coming into the kitchen and hunched over to catch his breath. He was clutching one of his yellow legal pads, and he began to wave it excitedly as soon as he stood straight. I did it! I did it! I found what they're at! It was a code! I was just looking at it wrong! The code wasn't just in the pulses like I thought. It's also in the frequencies that the pulses are on! Here, take a look at this! At that, he stopped waving his legal pad and gave it to my mother. Although he had written it himself, he started reading it over my mother's shoulder, muttering words here and there. Socialist States of America. Glory. Gorbachev. World Socialism. This settles it, he said when my mother finished reading. I knew that those damn commies were trying to brainwash us with their propaganda, but now I have some real proof. With that, he snatched up the legal pad and returned to the basement. In the distance, I could hear his faint CQ, CQ, as he hit the airwaves to tell his friends that he had made an important discovery and needed to meet with them in person to tell them about it. I had seen some of his friends before. They were men in overcoats and felt hats, who kept their collars popped up around their ears even in the summertime, and were always trying to look in every direction at once. Never before had I seen so many of them at one time, though. A few days after my father made his discovery, they began trickling in, all with the same hunted look on their faces. As they arrived, they were ushered into the basement. It must have been packed down there. Once all of them had arrived, my father told my mother not to disturb them unless it looked like the feds' alphabet soup were all about to knock down the front door at once. Then he shut the basement door and locked it. I was asleep long before the last of his friends left. A week later, he took me down to the basement and showed me a map of the Soviet Union that he had unfolded on a table. This, he said, pointing at the western edge of the map, is where the signal is coming from. The woodpecker's nest is somewhere north of Kiev. If I'm going to believe the feds about one thing, it's this. You know they have all sorts of planes and satellites taking pictures all over the world, and they say that there's a damn huge antenna somewhere around here 
That's where the woodpecker is coming from. Some of my friends are going to help me out. They say they can get me through the Iron Curtain. From there, I can get to the antenna and shut it down. It's the only way. Otherwise, the whole world is doomed. We'll all turn into a bunch of commies, and then what's left of the free world will fall. Maybe I can even make it broadcast a new message in the other direction. I'll have to talk to the boys about it, but maybe they can help me work something out. I bet that if I could get it to transmit a different message in the opposite direction, I could end the war and get those commies to give up. They'll be begging us for mountains of greenbacks. My parents fought a lot in the next few weeks. I'd heard them argue before. Usually it was taxes or the mortgage or something else with money that cleared up in a few days. But this time they yelled at each other for almost a week straight. Then they stopped yelling. They stopped talking altogether. Finally, my dad packed his suitcase, called a cab, and left in the middle of a cool April day. My mother acted like nothing had happened for more than a week. She just kept up with her routine, but did everything around the house for one fewer person. May crept closer. I wanted to ask if my father was going to be home for my birthday, but not unless my mother said something about him first. One Monday, I came home to find my mother sitting in front of the TV, wearing a look that I had never seen before. Her face was set, frozen, her lips clenched. Soviet officials have admitted that there has been what they are calling an undesirable radioactive situation at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. At this time, the Soviets have not released any other details, but Swedish nuclear authorities have detected abnormally high levels of radiation. There was a small picture of a lumpy gray building with a red and white smokestack in the corner of the screen, and the words breaking news across the bottom of the screen. The rest of the screen was taken up with the serious face of the news anchor, who went on in his bland Midwestern accent. At this time, Soviet authorities have evacuated the nearby city of Pripyat, a measure that they say is only a temporary precaution. My birthday came and went and my father didn't return home. When I asked about him, my mother told me not to worry and that he would be home soon. When that didn't satisfy me, she would say again that my father would be okay, then quickly change the subject or leave the room. Slowly, more details filtered through the iron curtain. Dozens of casualties were mentioned. I caught snippets of the news when I could, peeking through the doorway when my mother was watching TV. Whenever she noticed me, she leaped up, box of tissues falling out of her lap, and turned off the TV, but I heard lots of news anyway. The news anchors talked about the Soviets setting up an exclusion zone and not letting anyone go back to their homes because it was dangerous. Sometimes, when my mother wasn't at home, or when I thought she was taking a nap, I would sneak down into the basement and turn on my father's ham radio. I did like he had shown me, listening to static and chatter as I turned the tuning dial, waiting to find the woodpecker. I took my own notes sometimes, although I never recorded anything. I would carefully write numbers on blank pages of one of my father's legal pads, the date, the time, the frequency. It became a routine for me. Every day that I could, I would go listen to the woodpecker and take my notes. My mother almost never went in the basement. I could tell that she missed my father and that going into the basement reminded her too much of him. Three years after my father left home, the woodpecker went offline. They did a short piece about it on the evening news, 
treating it like it was just another filler piece about a dog with green hair. My mother and I saw it together. When they went to commercial break, I turned to my mother. I wanted to ask if she was happy that father's dream had come true, but she turned away from me and busied herself making dinner. Two years after the woodpecker went offline, the Soviet Union broke up. Suddenly, there were more than a dozen new countries to memorize in geography class. Soon afterward, I read a small article in the paper about the woodpecker. The Russians called it Duga-3 and claimed that it had been an early warning radar system. I didn't believe the article, but I cut it out anyway and tacked it to the wall in the basement. Even with the woodpecker offline, I still went down there. Sometimes I would turn on the radio just to listen to the chatter. After a while, I started talking to people. I got my radio license when I was in the seventh grade, after my mother walked in on me talking to one of my father's friends over the radio. She said that she didn't care if I wanted to use the radio, just as long as I did it legally. She even paid the license and test fees for me. After that, I spent a lot more time on the radio, talking to anyone I could understand if we interested one another. Making friends all over the world. I tried to start an amateur radio club at school, but after a month of meetings attended only by me and my advisor, I gave up on it. I went to a state school for college, spending all my time in my studies and any time I had left over on the radio. I found there was a radio club on my campus purely by accident when I recognized the voice of one of the guys in my discreet math class coming over the radio in my room. After that, I still spent a lot of time on the radio, but it wasn't my personal radio. We would sit around in a basement room of the math building, talking about classes and technology and anything else that came up while eating pizza. There wasn't any beer. They'd only tried the combination of alcohol and amateur radio once, and after getting yelled at for three weeks straight by two Australians and receiving letters from the FCC threatening to revoke the group's license, they'd been wary of trying it again. I graduated early with majors in mathematics and communications, and a job already lined up at a local telecom. In my spare time, I went back over my father's scrawled notes, all of which I had kept, along with my own rudimentary notes about the woodpecker. I got a small apartment and filled most of it with computer equipment, and my father's old radio equipment, past and future separated by a few clear feet of desktop. My handwriting had grown to be almost as bad as my father's, and his notes became easier to read as a result. Although some of my father's work had been based on erroneous assumptions, I found that he had gotten some things right. Slowly, I was able to reproduce the same sorts of results that my father had gotten in his analysis of the woodpecker signal. I transferred all of his old recordings onto my computer and analyzed every peak and valley, running it against the frequencies that he had been listening to when he made each recording. After several months of sleepless nights and naps during coffee breaks in the day, I finished writing a program that could decode the signals from the woodpecker reliably and store the text of the message for perusal at a later date. The stress of my day job sitting in a cubicle crunching numbers for the local telecom and my nighttime work programming started to take its toll. I was falling asleep as soon as I got home after work, waking up in the dead of night, working on my program, and crashing again a few hours later, only to wake after another few hours to return to the office. One evening, I awoke to a familiar tapping coming from the speaker of my ham radio. 
I had made it all the way through my microwave dinner and had turned on my radio in order to talk with an acquaintance who said that he lived in a former Soviet bloc country, but I hadn't gotten hold of him before weariness had overtaken me. It took me several moments to recognize that the tapping pulse was coming from my radio rather than an old recording on my computer, but as soon as I discovered that the true s- but as soon as I discovered the true source of the sound, I sprang into action. Memories drifted through my mind as my computer recorded a quarter hour's tapping. Once I was satisfied that I had a large enough sample to allow for repetition, even in what I thought to be a reasonably long message, I set my computer to work analyzing the signal and went to bed. In the morning, I was confronted by one message repeated across dozens of screens of text. Still alive. I thought about those two words all day at work, to the point that I found myself typing them over and over when I stopped concentrating on the work I was supposed to be doing, trying to extract their exact meaning through simple repetition. When I returned home, I turned on my radio and began scanning the airwaves. After a few minutes of searching, I found the signal again and made a quick recording, only a minute this time. If it was the same signal, then even that would be a bit of overkill. I ate a hasty dinner while my computer mulled over the signal and dropped a forkful of instant mashed potatoes in my lap when it chirped to let me know that it had finished. The screen displayed the same message. I returned to programming, twisting and reverse-engineering the code that I had already written so that I could encode my own message into woodpecker-like taps. I didn't sleep that night, but by the time that I had to leave for work in the morning, I had encoded the question, Who are you? into a repeating signal, and had set it to transmit on the radio frequency that I thought the originator of the woodpecker signal would be most likely to pick up on. I could hardly concentrate on my job all day. Those times when I wasn't speculating on all the possible replies that I might receive, I was thinking about how I could streamline my communications with the woodpecker. I left work early and rushed back to my apartment to stop my own signal and scan the airwaves. Rather than simply scan through all available frequencies, I opted to try only those frequencies where my father and I had encountered the woodpecker before, and soon met with success. I waited impatiently for my computer to decode the message. When it had finally finished, I was disappointed by the reply. I am the woodpecker. As quickly as processing speeds would allow, I began to broadcast a new message. Where are you? My reply came the next day, when I left work for my apartment in the middle of the day. 51 degrees, 18 minutes, 19.06 seconds north, 30 degrees, 3 minutes, 57.35 seconds east. I called my office late that afternoon and told my boss's secretary that one of my parents had died, so I wouldn't be in to work for the next week or two while I sorted out various affairs. It was a half-truth. I hung up before the secretary could ask me any questions and began packing. I didn't have a plane ticket yet, but I figured that it shouldn't be too hard to find a cheap flight at the airport. I didn't expect that there could be that many people in a given day who wanted to fly to the Ukraine. I was grateful that the roads within the fourth zone weren't very overgrown, despite having seen very little use in the 18 years since the explosion of Reactor 4, 
I had made it out of Pripyat with very little incident, and the road I was on looked to lead straight to Duga 3. I drove slowly, aware that the nearest help was at least 30 kilometers away. Despite my slow speed, the antenna quickly grew larger. Soon enough, I was at the fence that surrounded the installation and could drive no further. I shut off my car's engine and got out to survey the fence. There was barbed wire all along its top, and even without the wire it stood nearly ten feet tall. Judging by the size of the installation, I thought that it would be getting dark by the time I could manage to get in if I tried to circumnavigate it. Instead, I got back in my car and pulled alongside the gate where the fence was not quite as tall. Not considering how I might get back out afterward, I pulled one of the carpeted floor mats out of the car, climbed onto the roof of the vehicle, put the mat over the barbed wire, and scrambled over the top of the fence as best as I could. I hit the ground harder than anticipated on the far side of the fence and sat for a few minutes, rubbing at my knee where I'd hit it upon my landing. There were several buildings in the complex, but I headed for the largest building, which I guessed to be the source of the woodpecker transmissions. The large concrete bunker was connected to the antenna array by an enormous conduit, which came into view as I circled the building. At last, I found a rust-spotted steel door on the far side of the bunker, which proved to be unlocked when I tried the handle. I opened the door as slowly as I could manage, wondering if my father had gotten this far when he had tried to shut the array down. Inside, sunlight shone dimly through cracked, dingy windows illuminating an interior as drab and gray as the bunker's exterior. I closed the door quietly and pulled a flashlight from my pocket before setting off towards the heart of the bunker, where I hoped I would find something, if not someone. I wondered who would be crazy enough to spend more time in the zone than they had to. I had only been beyond the fence for half a day, and I already felt uneasy. I remembered seeing wisps of smoke rising through the trees once or twice during my drive, and once I had seen a rutted gravel road going off through the trees. There were still some people living in the area. I knew better, but images of mutated freaks with five eyes and glowing green skin sprang to mind, and I had to push those thoughts aside and try to concentrate on where I was going. The corridors in the bunker all looked the same, only differentiated from one another by sporadic strings of Cyrillic characters which I couldn't quite keep straight in my head. For every time that I had been thankful for the simple uniformity of Soviet design in the outside world, I now cursed the confusion that it was causing within the confines of the dingy bunker. Every time that I thought I was making some progress, I found myself at another dead end. Once, as I was turning around after reaching the end of a corridor that had terminated in a broom closet, I heard quick, faint footsteps in the distance. After that, I began walking more slowly, one foot in front of the other, heel then toe. I could barely hear my footsteps over the sound of my breathing. The thought that I might not be alone made me more and more uneasy. After those first fleeting sounds of someone else's footsteps, I began imagining who could be making them. I would stop, suddenly, thinking that I heard something, but when I stood still there was only silence. 
Then, as I turned a corner that looked like every other corner, I saw a sliver of light disappear as a door clicked shut. I hurried down the hall, trying to keep silent, sure that I had found the new woodpecker until I reached the door that I had seen shut. I reached for the knob, afraid that it might shock me. It didn't. The knob turned freely, just like all the others I had tried. I threw the door open, hoping that the element of surprise would help me escape if necessary. The office beyond was bathed in the cold, flickering light of a pair of bare fluorescent tubes. I stood for a moment, feeling exposed in the bright light blinking at the startled, middle-aged man who faced me. Strastvoice, he said after a moment. English? I asked, by way of a greeting. Da, yes, a little. I was relieved. I didn't know if I would have been able to mime the kind of information I wanted to communicate with him. Are you the woodpecker? I asked. Yet. Once I was part of it, but not now. Who is sending the signal, then? Signal? He looked perplexed. Many people, many people send signals. Antennas are a very good place to broadcast from. Many people sneak in to climb them and put up their own antennas. No, the woodpecker signal. It's coming from here. I heard it. I talked to it. He was silent for a moment, then. You talked to woodpecker? Yes. All that tapping was a code back when this place was crawling with your comrades. Now the tapping is back. He looked uncomfortable. You must have seen him. Just tell me where to look or where to wait. Da, he said after another minute, then told me a series of turns which I struggled to keep up with, afraid that I would get hopelessly lost. Before I could ask him to repeat his directions, he took my hand, grasped it firmly for a moment, said, Desvidanya, and ushered me out of the office before re-entering the room, closing the door, and locking it. I took at least one wrong turn, but finally I found a door that looked like the one he had told me about. It was larger and sturdier than any other that I had encountered, and it had large red Cyrillic characters, which I guessed said restricted, painted on it. The knob turned easily, but something stood against the other side of the door, and it took me a lot of effort to shove it open. Inside, I discovered that a tangled mass of cables had stood against the door. The room that I was in seemed both vast and cramped, an effect that I was sure had something to do with only being able to see a small portion of the space at any one time because of the narrow beam of my flashlight. Hello? I asked the stifling darkness, but there was no reply. Still, I walked slowly further into the room, picking my way past tangles of cables. I thought that I could hear a soft mechanical hum as I made progress into the room, but echoes and heaps of equipment made it hard to figure out where it came from. As I neared the center of the room, I could hear the volume of the hum increase, and I thought that I must be near its source. As I swept the beam of my flashlight across my field of view, I saw something that reflected the light back differently. Focusing on the object, I saw an enormous glass jar or tube mounted atop an equally massive computer terminal. I could see the suggestion of a large object suspended within the tube, but I had to get closer to determine its exact nature. 
Although it was newer than any of the other electronic equipment that I had seen, the computer looked to be quite old, ten years at least, and maybe as much as twenty. Small lights blinked here and there on the machine, indicating to me little, but that it was still running. I studied the switch-encrusted panels on the lower portion of the machine, but soon gave up on their Cyrillic labels and turned my attention to the tube that crowned the whole thing. I think that part of me must have known what was within that jar as soon as I saw it up close, for the object suspended within it had a distinctive shape to it, but my curiosity overtook me. The glass of the tube had collected a considerable amount of dust, and I brushed some of it off with my hand, all the while keeping it illuminated. Then, in the middle of clearing another hand-high swath of glass, I recoiled from the object as it suddenly became terrible to me. Unthinking, I ran through the tangle of wires towards the exit of that room, falling to the floor several times in my haste. Somehow, I managed to find my way back to the door of the office where I had met my nameless ex-Soviet guide. I pounded my fist against the door and shouted, my fear turning to rage as I began to form words again. Answers, damn it! You know something you didn't tell me! After a while, I calmed down enough to stop banging on the door. I heard soft footsteps, and then... Are you sensible now? Yes. Yes, just please let me in, I said, my voice shaking. I heard the lock click, and then the hallway flooded with light, making me blink. The man took my arm and guided me into the room, sitting me down on a plain wooden chair. Just as I opened my mouth to start asking loud, angry questions again, his soft voice cut me off. I worked here, before the government made everyone leave. My commander here was a good party member, Order of Lenin, smart man. We worked to spot missile launches, just like your NATO said, but he thought we could do more with Signal. Not just spot launches, but prevent them. We thought he was... Mad is your word for it? He asked, drawing a circle in the air by his temple with his index finger. Nobody here said so to him, but everyone thought it. Not the KGB. They thought he was a very smart man. They gave him money and scientists. He tried to set up a code. I did not know it actually worked. But here you are. For years, he sent out messages with Signal, watching for measles at the same time. But nothing happened. KGB wanted to know progress. He always said he just needed more time. Then he thought of problem with his system. He said that Signal was going through machines. Only machines would read it. He wanted human brains to pick up on it. Then Chernobyl. I left them. Quit. He stayed. Kept Dugo running. He had an order of Lenin. He was very dedicated to the cause. So he stayed until they closed Duga. Always working, I think. After Chernobyl, not many people stayed. My parents did. This is the only place they ever knew, they said. They said they wouldn't leave. Last year, I came back here to keep them company. My wife was not happy. She left me, took our daughter. I said it was my parents. They are old, you know. They cannot do everything for themselves anymore. I am all they have. I came to Duga for the radio this time. I can talk to people here. It is something to do during daytime when father says he has energy to do everything. 
When he didn't say anything further, I started asking another question, the volume of my voice rising with each word until I was cut off. When I came back, I could see that Duga was running again. Power was on, and I could feel transmitter broadcasting. I went to main operations room to see what was happening. I had not seen what the commander had done before, not since the accident. I did not know what to do. I did not want to touch anything or disconnect anything. I could not. I'm a good man. Uh, That would be murder. So I left it alone. Go, now. When it is all done, I will do the right thing. I didn't protest when he helped me out of the chair and guided me down the twisting corridors of the bunker and out into the Ukrainian twilight. We walked to my car in silence, going through a hole in the fence a hundred feet from where I had parked. As soon as I got into the car, he turned and walked off into the woods with a final Dasvidanya. I sat, thoughts running through my head on radio waves and ballistic missiles until I realized that the sun was nearly down. Then I started the car and drove, perhaps faster than was prudent, away from the installation and towards the gate at the edge of the fourth zone through which I had entered earlier that day. Since my terrified flight from the control room, my mind had been turning over and over the thing that I had seen in that great glass tube. For no more than a second back there, my light had shone upon a human form covered in cables. When I had looked up, It was not some unknown Soviet scientist looking back at me, but my own father. And that's it. Please join us again in two weeks on April 17th, when guest host Sharon Shu will be interviewing me, and I'll be reading another story out of my trunk. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniaks. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.